0: This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I
0: sentenced you to 10 years at Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you
1: there, you in here, lay down the those inmates that were here in the institution during an execution, it had an impression on them that maybe I was still with them and to some extent, maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back that stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I give it back to them. That was one of the one of the problems we ran into, you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a and drinking coffee pretty quick they'd have to plan in there to, to get under your skin
0: some way or, or try to figure a way out Welcome ladies and gentlemen. I'm sure you've noticed uh, it's not Anthony introducing it and that unfortunately is because Anthony couldn't make it. So in his place we have our very favorite Samuel Anderson stepping in. Hi Sam, how are you?
2: Good Sky, how are you doing?
0: I am doing so good. Just living my best life out here in LA. I have less than a week left now and I'm very sad about it but i uh, been out here doing my dissertation research for three months. Doing my best Living my best life, watching so many movies on the big screen. Old movies on the big screen, I should say. But I'm I'm excited to be back. I love the podcast, of course. How are things going with you and The Pen and, and all that jazz? The
2: Pen's been great. We have been busy with school season. Of course, we just got done with Squawky Fest yesterday. Uh, we had... I believe seven breweries came in and and they made their own squawky and it was a lot of fun. Though we can't quite compete with the weather of LA. How's how's <laughs> the great city been?
0: It has been good. So my first month here, before I came, I checked my weather app and it was like 70s. I was like, amazing. I can totally do that. Then I got here and it rained for almost a month straight. <laughs> and I did not bring enough like cold weather gear rain gear and so I had to buy several sweatshirts here that was on me now like it's been holding at like high 60s low 70s and it has been gorgeous big fan I mean everything has just lined up real perfectly out here so Idaho is my home but I do kind of feel like I kind of belong in LA too so maybe I'll start an LA podcast I won't but (laughs) uh, (laughs) I'll I'll stick with this one because it's very very near and dear to my heart
2: what movies have you been watching
0: (laughs) gosh, what movies have I not been watching? As I mentioned to you prior to us recording, I got to attend the Turner Classic Movies Film Festival, uh, which was I think, like, maybe one of the greatest weekends of my life. There, I saw Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and The Music Man, two very classic musicals on the largest theater or on the largest screen in North America at the Chinese, the Grauman's Chinese Theater, like the famous theater that has all the hand and footprints in the cement. That was amazing. I saw um, what's called a Pre code, so uh, just a quick. This is just what I study, so I apologize. But there's in 1934, it was the production uh, production code administration came out with this very very restrictive. Uh, production code basically the the precursor to the ratings that we have today and they had all sorts of rules about what could be on screen and what couldn't and so there actually was a film called man's castle from 1933 so the code came out in 1934 Mm -hmm. so anything that came out prior to 1934 is called Mm pre-code and so this was a pre-code movie and it was they kept calling it the world premiere of this restored version that had eight minutes of restored footage that had been cut In various censorship phases. And that was very, very cool. And there was partial nudity in it and wow. the, the gasp that went up in that movie theater was <laughs> unparalleled because even i mean you know we're kind of used to it today but back in the old old hollywood and even in pre-codes unheard of so that was very fun um i got to see i went to this theater called the new beverly um it's owned by quentin tarantino actually and i saw again two more pre-code movies so one was made in 32 one was made in 34 or 34 so it was like right on the edge but that was amazing those were original 35 millimeter prints of the film so that is what audiences in 19 in the 1930s were watching so oh gosh I really am am just having, and then last night actually I went to the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica, and I saw Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell, and then I saw Roman Holiday ha- had Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck in it, like quintessential nineteen fifty three movies. So I'm just really having the best time out here.
2: Sounds incredible.
0: I mean, I guess we should probably start talking about not movies.
2: All right. So who do you have for us today, Sky?
0: I'm talking about number eight three two three. Okay, her name. There's a debate as to how her name was pronounced. The w- I'm going to say it the way it's spelled. So it's 8323 Eddie May Gooch-Howry. I'll get into why why her name is maybe said differently. My sources for her today are her inmate file, Ancestry.com records, Newspapers.com records, um, and an article about common law marriage in California from APeoplesChoice.com. Eddie is one of the ones that we missed in our original comb through of the records, probably because her name is spelled like a man's name. It's spelled E-D-D-I-E. Now there is a potential back in the 50s there was a name E-D-I-E and that was pronounced Edie. I'm not really sure how to pronounce her name and I'll get into why that is in a second as well. So I actually found her while doing research for Verna Keller who I think I covered last season. And I probably would have missed her, because again, her her first name is spelled E-D-D-I-E if it had not been for the middle name May, And May was spelled M-A-E. With that said, this is the first time that we've really ever had information about her existence at the penitentiary and you, Sam, were kind enough to go down to the archives and pull her file. But her file, frustratingly, was almost fully redacted, which made researching her very difficult. And what I have found about her early life is based on what little tiny details I could glean from her intake form. Now, I'm pretty sure that what I found is her, because the details are just too similar to be anyone else, but I do want to say that I cannot be, one. I'm like 99% sure, so I will just leave that with that if I have the wrong family, I sincerely apologize, but I really do think this is her, and let me explain why. Every name, besides her own on her intake file, is redacted, so here are the facts I know for sure, at least if the facts on her intake form are true and honest. So she was born May 13th, 1920, in Eufaula, Oklahoma, which is in eastern central Oklahoma. Her maiden name was Taylor. She had three sisters and two brothers. She last attended school at Jefferson High School in Eufaula, meaning she remained in Eufaula throughout her teenage years. She married three times with two sons. And so with all of this knowledge and a thorough scouring of Ancestry.com records, here is what I believe is Eddie's background. So she was born Edna May Taylor, which is why I think her name is said like Eddie rather than Edie because it's Edna. She was born in Ufala, Oklahoma on May 13th, 1920. I did find a genie community tree through Ancestry.com that lists Edna with this birth date and the following details. So I'm pretty sure this is her. So she was the fourth child and second daughter of Edward Taylor and Jerusha, also known, known as Rusha Bowen Taylor. She had three brothers, Howard and Edel, who were both older and a younger brother, Ellis, and four sisters, an older sister, Thelma, and then younger sisters, Mabel, Myrtle, and Caroline. Her redacted file shows that she had two brothers and three sisters instead of three brothers and four sisters. This is probably because by the time of her arrest, at least one of her siblings had died. Her brother Adele had died in 1947, and I think her sister Myrtle had died, um, but I couldn't find any records with the details of that death. I just know that her records... Stopped after a certain point. What I will say is that Eufaula, Oklahoma had only about 2,000 residents in the 1940s and 1950s, so it seems fairly unlikely that two families matching such similar descriptions, you know, would be in the same community. So on top of this sort of community family tree that I found earlier, I'm now like 94% sure this is her. This percentage will continue to go up as we continue. The family remained in Eufaula. Her father was a farmer during the Dust Bowl, so the family more than likely lived in poverty, and in fact, the 1930 census listed their street address as unimproved dirt. Still, Edna got to go to school in her youth, and she's even mentioned in the Indian Journal, which is a newspaper from Eufaula, in March 1928, and it reads, quote, On the night of February 24th, a goodly crowd was present to hear the following program, which was rendered by pupils of both primary and advanced rooms, end quote. Eddie read a tribute to President George Washington, and this is when she would have been roughly in the third grade, about eight or nine years old. Eddie attended school through the 8th grade. She quit Jefferson High School during ninth grade, and as we've seen so many times before, especially with women, the reason that she quit was probably because she got married in December 1936, when she was just 16 years old. According to the Indian Journal, she married Albert Bumgarner. Albert was about 5 years her senior. He was working as a clerk for the Works Progress Administration, which was one of the organizations that FDR uh, set up during the New Deal. Albert and Eddie remained in Eufaula after their marriage. Their first son, George, was born about a year later on December 8, 1937, and a second son, Billy Joe, was born on May 24, 1939. Now, interestingly, I am not sure why this is, but both newspapers and ancestry records state that Eddie and Albert Bumgarner were issued a marriage license on February 12, 1942, in Eufaula. So this would indicate that they divorced and then remarried, but I have no record of of their separation or divorce. In fact, Eddie is listed as Albert's next of kin on his World War II draft card from October 1940. If they did get divorced, it was probably sometime in 1941 that they eventually then reconciled. I wonder if they ever actually got married again or if they just got the
2: license.
0: But if they did get married again, this second marriage didn't really last very long. And that's because another record shows that on October 15th, 1942, eight months after the possible second Eddie Albert marriage, she married. Chester Barnett in Benton County, Arkansas. I couldn't really find anything definitive about him, about Chester. I also think she either lost or gave up custody of her two boys because the 1950 census shows them living with their father and stepmother in Sutter, California, which is a tiny hamlet in North Cal. Oh geez, I'm a California person now. No Cal. It's a tiny hamlet in Northern California near Sacramento. Soon after her marriage to Chester, it seems that the couple moved to Los Angeles, actually. But I'm not sure when or why. Prior to their moving, an article appeared in the Indian Journal on November 12th, 1942, titled, Ufala Woman Suffers Beating Near Chakota, and it reads, quote, Edna Taylor Barnett, about 22, who lives two miles south of Eufala, was found unconscious about 8.15 o'clock Saturday night on U.S. Highway 69 in the south end of Chakota with a deep cut on the back of her head, end quote. So according to this report, two military men home on leave actually found her on the side of the Road and called the police. She was taken to Hills Hospital in Chakota before going home with relatives. When she was asked what had happened, her story wasn't totally clear. She first accused a man named Marvin Toe as the man who attacked her, but then said his brother Elmer Toe was the man who had done it. Marvin admitted to being with her that night, but he denied attacking her. She ended up not pressing charges against either man. That's really all that seems to have come of this incident. So, just kind of a funny. Not funny, obviously, but just a a little report that, you know, she was beaten on the side of the road and I wonder if she had something maybe to do with it and that's why she didn't press charges, but I can't say for sure. Mm
2: beaten unconscious that's not a small beating either
0: yeah I don't know It's it was and again it just it was just this one article there was no follow up these were all the details and that's so frustrating about these early newspapers I feel like is that you'll you'll read the craziest story you've ever read in your whole life and then you'll never hear anything about it again and you're just like yeah. what is this
2: so frustrating
0: on July 23rd 1943 she was arrested by the LAPD obviously in Los Angeles on a drunk charge under the name Edna Coker nothing really major came of this charge and Edna, Eddie, just remained in Los Angeles for a little bit. At some point between 1943 and 1949 she divorced Charles and married a man named Jimmy Earl Jackson. I couldn't find much about Jimmy. His real name was Earl David Jackson. One thing I do know is that it doesn't really seem like he was a very good influence on her. And that is because on July 10th, 1949, the Times News from Twin Falls reported the couple, meaning of course Eddie and Jimmy, had been pursued by Twin Falls police to Oklahoma after passing a $400 worthless check at the Douglas Lincoln Mercury car dealership for a down payment on a car. She actually probably never would have been found had she not been arrested in Oklahoma City for vagrancy on July 6th, just four days earlier to her arrest in Oklahoma. In fact, this vagrancy charge caused a lot of major problems for her. Jimmy was sent to the Idaho State Penitentiary for five years for drawing a check without funds in the bank. Eddie, however, was sent to the Polk County Jail in Dallas, Oregon. And this is because she was being held on a charge of obtaining money under false pretenses in Oregon. So in December 1948, Eddie had issued a forged check worth $50.49 at a Dallas grocery store. So had she not been arrested for vagrancy in Oklahoma, she would have missed out presumably at least for a little bit longer on both this Oregon charge and the charge in Idaho. And so she was brought back to Dallas, Oregon, held in the Polk County Jail. 3 months later, she was sentenced to at at least two years at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem. She was released on February 3rd, 1951, on a final release. Now, at some point, and I don't know if it was before or after her incarceration in Oregon, she met a man named Paul Howry. Paul was from Arkansas, but he had an incredibly troubled past. When he was just eight years old in 1920, the census lists him as an inmate in a behavioral school in Kentucky with his older brother Harry after his parents had divorced and neither parent took them in. I think that's banal. Wow. Yeah. So parents divorce, neither one of them claim the kids. And so they end up going to a behavioral school in Kentucky, which is so sad. And then according to his intake form, he also spent time at the Arkansas State Boys Industrial School in his youth. So he may have been a troublemaker and maybe that's why the parents didn't want to take either of them in, but that is still harsh, harsh treatment to be a kid and to not have either one of your parents take you in. His first major criminal charge came in 1929 for burglary and grand larceny in Arkansas. And then in 1934, he was sentenced to 21 years for robbery in Arkansas and was released in 1940. By the late 1940s, he had moved to Los Angeles and there he actually steadily held a job in LA until 1951 when Eddie was released from Oregon. And so it kind of makes it possible that they could have met in LA before or after for incarceration in uh, in Oregon. Now, regardless of when they met, they began spending lots of time together and they considered themselves common law married and there is no official record of their marriage. According to her inmate form, she returned to Los Angeles after her release and became a housewife. And so basically they just started living together and they likely called it a common law marriage given the social mores at the time against non-married couples living together. They often called that lewd cohabitation, but they could not be officially in a common law marriage because California has not recognized common law marriages since 1895. For the women, I feel like we don't hear about the men in common law marriages quite as often and I find that really interesting but women, there tend to be a lot of women in common law marriages and I think that was just a way of trying to make things look respectable whereas now of course we don't see as, you know, living together prior to marriage if marriage is is, is an option or something that the parties want. We don't see that really as that big of a deal but back in the 50s, that was you just didn't do that. That made you like a, a loose woman. The sexual mores of the time are crazy. So anyway, the couple wandered around in a transient state and they soon found themselves in Twin Falls in October 1951. So, you know, we've done Twin Falls history several times before. I won't go into it yet again. Instead, I will do the exercise where I look at the front page of the local newspaper to see what is going on locally and nationally. Unlike the last time I did this last season, where all all the stories were national. I think it was all about the Cold War and there was maybe one story about someone who actually had got hit by a car and killed, I think. Almost all of the stories on the front page of the Times News from Twin Falls on Wednesday, October 3rd, 1951 were almost all local news. Hmm. Directly in the center of the top half of this front page is a photograph, which is very dark, I think mostly just because of the quality of the scan. And the caption reads, "Quote: The crushed body of Ted Lewis, 17, Jerome, lies beside the auto under which he was pinned when the vehicle missed a curve southwest of Twin Falls Tuesday night and overturned. Oh. Companion Carl Boyd, 20, 119 Tyler Street, was injured in the crash. He was found wandering along the highway by passing motorists who took him to Magic Valley Memorial Hospital, end quote. And then the headline for the following story was Youth Dies Under Car. Traffic toll for area is 33-10 in Twin Falls County.
2: That's terrible.
0: The article goes on to describe the accident in which Ted Lewis tragically passed away. His companion Carl Boyd, Boyd broke his shoulder and probably suffered some sort of concussion because quote, at first he did not recall that Lewis was with him end quote about two hours before the crash, a citizen reported the two boys for running a stop sign, but he didn't sign a complaint against them. So the police chief Howard W. Gillette couldn't arrest them. He did pull them over and caution them about their driving, but he believed quote, if that citizen had signed a complaint, they would have been safe this morning and quote. And the saddest part is Ted Lewis had married just six weeks prior to his death. And here's another headline. This one is really interesting. And I'm really sad that Anthony isn't here because he would totally dig into this. The headline is, quote, hunt spread for missing Twin Falls hunter, end quote. This is, so it's about a man named Ray D.A.G., who was a Twin Falls attorney. He'd gone hunting in the Black Hawk Mountain area in Northern Idaho, east of Elk City, over the previous weekend. But he failed to return to his hunting camp on Monday. AG was 63, but he was an experienced outdoorsman and hunter. He was last seen on 4 p.m. on Monday, October 1st, after a hunting companion left AG on a mountain, attempting to drive some elk toward him. But when the companion returned an hour later, AG was gone. Wow. Fifteen men had gone out searching the night before, but AG's sister and brother-in-law were calling for more volunteers to aid in the hunt in this newspaper article. This was a story that I was like, I am not just leaving this here because Ray D. AG, I'm pretty sure I've seen that name in our files. He's the Twin Falls attorney, so there's no way he wasn't involved in cases that ended up in the penitentiary. Oh, I found that so interesting. So I wanted to follow up on this story. By October 12th, sheriffs had announced that the official search for Ray had been temporarily suspended after nearly two weeks of daily searching, but his family and friends, of course, continued to put together unofficial searches. By 1953, the $2,000 reward the family offered in 1951 for the discovery of his body had been halved to 1000 And then in 1954, his wife Pauline was selling his law library through ads in the newspaper. And so so Ultimately, it seems that he or his body were never found.
2: That's so sad. It's
0: so sad. And it's so head-scratching. And one of those stories that's about someone going out into the woods and never coming back. The oddest part is his body was never found. I don't even know what to, like, theorize as what happened.
2: There's all of those stories about people going in the woods, never being seen again. And, like, you know about it, but it's always weird an experienced Idaho hunter stepping out one day and just never returning.
0: Never returning. And someone who probably was pretty prolific, presumably, I don't know that much about him, but probably a a fairly high-profile lawyer. He was 63, so he had lived his whole career, probably, you know, had done pretty well just disappeared so interesting not all of the news on the front page is bad, thankfully. As another headline announced that board members of the school district had finally received architects' plans and specifications for a new high school in the area. The gymnasium was supposed to be one of the biggest in the state with a maple wood floor. It also had a large library, or it was going to, I should say. It was going to have a large library, a cafeteria, and a variety of special rooms. The plans were to cost $1.2 million. Do you want to guess how much in... So it's 51, $1.2 million in today's money? The okay.
2: cat 20 million?
0: Not too bad, actually, if my head math is correct, because the 50s is like the one era I have figured out. It would be about 10 to 15 million. So 10 to 15 million for school, a lot of money. At least that sounds like a great school. We need good schools. Of course. We needed them in the 50s. We need them now. (laughs) If there's anything we should be spending 1.2 million dollars on, it's honestly schools. Absolutely. Then there's another article on the front page with the headline, Twin Falls Man Beaten and Robbed, Couple Held. Now, according to the story, which is from the perspective of the victim, whose name was Rodney T. Bell... The story went as follows. He was in a bar on Shoshone Street the day before, October 2nd, around 10.30 p.m. when a woman approached him asking if he knew where to find good whiskey. He told her Kimberly, and Kimberly is a town about six miles west of Twin Falls. She then asked him if he had a car and if he would be able to take her to Kimberly, which he agreed to. As they got into the car, they were approached by a man who asked if he could talk to the woman, and she then asked if the man could come to Kimberly with her and Rodney. Suddenly, Rodney got suspicious. And he told them he wasn't going to go anymore. Then the man opened the door, pulled a revolver on Rodney and said, get over. I'll do the driving. Rodney told the man, if you're going to kill me, you might as well do it here. The man then hit Rodney over the head seven or eight times with the revolver. Rodney began shouting for help, but no one came to his rescue. The woman then searched Rodney's pockets for his keys. As he protested, the woman told him not to argue because, quote, Johnny has killed before and may kill you, end quote. The couple then drove north on Highway 93 with Rodney in the front seat with them, his head bleeding profusely because he's been hit over the head seven or eight times with a gun. The woman asked stranger if they had any water since Rodney was bleeding so bad. They drove north toward Jerome, which is about 15 miles north of Twin Falls, until they were about three miles outside of it. Then they turned east for another three miles, and then south for half a mile before stopping in an open field. Once they stopped, they shook him down for everything of value he had, including his wall, They asked him his name and address and took out his ID to verify that he wasn't lying to them. Then, in a move of kindness, the woman dipped a handkerchief in a nearby puddle and washed the blood off of Rodney's face, asking her companion not to hurt him anymore. Then the man told Rodney to remove his coat and necktie and then told the woman to remove all the labels from the coat and hide them. Still holding the gun, the man told Rodney to walk into the field. Once they were about 60 feet into the field, he forced Rodney to lie down and he tied his hands behind his back with his necktie. The man asked the woman for rags. She suggested the silk lining of her coat, since it was covered in Rodney's blood anyway. So Rodney was gagged with a silk scarf or maybe the silk lining of her coat, and the couple drove away. Rodney managed to free himself just a few minutes later, running to a nearby ranch, and he called the police. Through quick movement of the police, the couple were arrested on Blue Lakes Boulevard at 2 a.m. They were identified as Los Angeles couple Paul Howry and Eddie May Gooch.
2: Oh.
0: Gotcha. (laughs) According to newspaper reports, Rodney, who was a manager of a Singer sewing machine store, suffered a severe head wound and lost a lot of blood after being hit in the head several times with Paul's gun. Of course, this was a little bit of a different story than Eddie and Paul told, though not as much as you might expect. So here's Eddie's story. She said that she and Paul had been out drinking before they got into a fight and he left. She waited for him for three and a half hours, but he never came back. So instead, another patron, presumably Rodney Bell, came up and said he could drive her to the auto court which I used this term with my dad the other day and he was like what is that and I was like oh I forget this isn't 1940 my bad because I just always use 40 slang. The auto court is like a roadside motel hmm. and so he said he could drive her to the auto court where she and Paul had stopped for the night and as they were getting into Rodney's car Paul suddenly came up and asked Rodney what he thought he was doing. Rodney replied it was none of Paul's business because I'm assuming he has no idea that Paul and Eddie are together so it's just this random man coming up and being like what are you doing and he's just like, this isn't your business. Get out of here. So then Paul beat Rodney over the head with his revolver. Eddie said, quote, I think he, meaning Rodney, and my husband made some kind of deal, but I do not know what it was, end quote. She said they all got into the car with Rodney in between the two of them with Paul driving. And she says, quote, we drove several miles on the highway, then turned off on a side road. Then Belle and my husband got out when we drove back to Twin Falls, but I did most of the driving back into town. Bell's billfold was in the car, but there was no money in it, end quote. Paul's story was very similar to Eddie except that he gives no reason for beating Rodney over the head, just saying he did it after he saw Eddie either getting into or out of Rodney's car. He says they stopped three miles outside of Jerome when Rodney got out of the car, quote, and walked to a fence behind the highway. I followed him and took his tie and tied his hands behind him, after which he crawled through the fence. When I hit him, he dropped his pocketbook, watch, and glasses in the car. We found his pocketbook on the way back to Twin Falls, but there was no money in it, end quote. That's what's so interesting is these stories do match up quite a bit. It mostly is just the motivation that differ yeah. um, and, and the little details of how they met and you know why they were getting the car and stuff like that. So Eddie and Paul were arrested and arraigned on the charges of armed robbery. According to the Times News on October 4th they asked for a preliminary hearing and were being held in the Twin Falls County Jail in lieu of a $5,000 bond. Just a day later on October 5th the Times News reported that Eddie had been taken to the Magic Valley Memorial Hospital for what doctors believe to be appendicitis. Authorities hired two matrons to guard Eddie in 24-hour shifts in her private room on the 4th floor of the hospital. Her appendix surgery scheduled for the next day was successful and she was dismissed from the hospital 4 days later on October night and returned to the county jail to await a preliminary hearing. 2 days after returning from the hospital, Eddie and Paul were bound over to the district court after their hearings which included testimony from 3 witnesses: Rodney Bell, police chief Howard Gillette, and detective Claude Wiley. And Gillette and Wiley were the arresting officers who had to force Eddie and Paul's car off of the road when they wouldn't pull over. During during this hearing, neither Eddie nor Paul were represented by attorneys, nor did they cross-examine any of the witnesses or take the stand in their own defense. So it was determined that their main trial would take place at the end of November. However, when it came time for the trial, both Eddie and Paul pleaded guilty, quote, of robbery by fear and force, end quote. They were sentenced on November 28th by Judge Kales E. Lowe, who told them their sentences could be anywhere from five years to life. Wow. Paul was sentenced to life in prison, while Eddie was sentenced to 15. 15 years. This is the reasoning that the judge gave for this. He says, quote, this is the type of offense that cannot be permitted. It is only by good fortune that you are not facing a charge of murder, end quote. And then he also told Eddie that the reason her sentence was different was because she only had one previous felony conviction, whereas Paul had at least two, and because she hadn't participated in the application of force. And arguably, she tried to at least take a little bit of care of Belle, you know, wash the blood off his face, ask Paul not to hit him anymore. But of course she was involved. And so both of them entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on December 1st, 1951. Her intake form, Eddie May Gooch Howery, race, white, sex, female, height, 66 and one half inches, she's about 5'6", weight, 117 pounds, age 31, eyes gray, hair blonde, complexion light, um, and no military record. Her Bertillion is quite marked up. She has two small scars on her forehead, and perhaps this is from the time she was attacked in 1942. Her upper teeth were false and her lower teeth were bad. As a tattoo girl myself, I'm thrilled to announce she had two tattoos, one on each shoulder. One on the left shoulder said Jake and the one on the right shoulder said Witty with a heart underneath it. Huh. I don't know who these names are referring to. Granted, there are about seven years between 1942 and 1949 when she was in LA that I couldn't trace. So maybe she had some love affairs that maybe didn't get as serious as her ink would insinuate. I don't really know, but love to see girls with tattoos in our inmates. She then had small scars on her left forearm and wrist, and on her right hand, her thumb and her index finger were amputated at the first joint, and I don't know why that is. She was one of five inmates in the women's ward when she entered, including Elizabeth Lottie Lacey, who was the last episode of last season. Verna Keller, who I mentioned, she's the one looking through her file Is how I found Eddie, and that was episode 56, and she also was in with Alwilda Reams, who who I covered in the first episode of last season as well. And so by the end of the month, the five of them were joined quickly by Kay Goddard, who I covered in episode 76, and Ruth Ellen Seckinger, who I promise will do at some point. While in prison, she behaved well, the prison matron said of her, quote, obedient, cooperative, energetic, and a pleasing personality, willing to do what she can in the line of work and helping the other girls, willing to do her part of work, helps others in the line of sewing, but is inclined to say things she shouldn't, end quote. And I would love to know what things she <laughs> is saying that she she shouldn't say. She worked at various housework tasks, just like all the other women and particularly liked sewing. She did attend some of the worship services and quote, apparently likes to sing hymns and quote, she first applied for pardon in June, 1952, which was denied a year later. Her case was then passed to the January 1954 board. And then in January it was passed to the April 1954 board. So she just kind of keeps getting kicked down the line at the April meeting of the board of pardons. Eddie's sentence was commuted to eight years, meaning that one third of her sentence, which is the minimum that they have to serve before they can be considered for parole was now roughly two and a half years. Once she had served two and a half years she would now be able to get out. Now as she was applying for parole, prison authorities put together a parole plan and a progress report. She stated she still cared for Paul, thought quite highly of him, and intended to wait for him until he got out and then she would go back to him. Authorities stated she had previously said she didn't want to have anything to do with him, but that did not seem to be the case at that time. Her parole plan mentioned an aunt and uncle, whose names were redacted, who offered Eddie a place to stay as well as a laundromat for eddie to run that the aunt had previously owned and eddie agreed she thought this was a good parole plan and the parole board seemed to agree she was released on parole on august 5th 1954 and it seems that she was granted parole placement in california leaving the state is often not allowed on paroles but this is probably where that aunt and uncle lived we know she has spent a lot of time in los angeles so she has some connections out here where i currently am i'm actually right now looking at some wall art. Of the county of Los Angeles, as I'm talking about Los Angeles. Then a document in her file shows that on October 27th, 1954, her parole was revoked, though I couldn't find any documents that stated why that parole got revoked. There is one document from right after she was released on parole that made it seem like she hadn't reported to California authorities that she was supposed to report to, so maybe it was because of that. And usually, when inmates are declared parole violators, it is documented that they are returned to the prison. But there's nothing that notes that she ever came back. So I'm wondering if it was that she didn't realize she had to get in contact with authorities or like didn't know who to go to. I don't really know what the situation is there. And maybe that's why. Maybe she said like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I thought I just had to report to the Idaho authorities. I'll fix it. I'll report to these people. And maybe they were like, okay, well then as long as you do that, like you don't have to come back. She was apparently reinstated on parole on September 1st, 1960, which seemed to indicate that they, you know, got in touch with her In some way, an incredibly unusual situation to have someone declared a parole violator, not be brought back to the prison, but then reinstated on parole six years later. That's what's crazy. Why in the world she was reinstated on parole in 1960? I don't know. Despite all of this unusual situation, she was granted a final discharge on October 12th, 1961. She spent two years, eight months, and one day in prison, and I think another seven years, two months, and seven days under police supervision. So this is actually one of the few inmates that I don't fully understand how their sentence worked because theoretically she was in prison for like almost nine years. She was under some sort of authority or supervision, but I guess, I mean, I guess it was kind of a serious crime. Her file being redacted was honestly more frustrating and heavily redacted. Like there are some sentences that you can't even read because it's just every other word is just redacted and that almost is more frustrating than not being able to find anything about someone because you know the information is there it just has been redacted beyond measure and of course I understand why we do it it's you know it's an important way to protect identities and things like that so I understand why but it is very frustrating because often that you know helps us understand the story a little bit better unfortunately I don't really have very good resolution to her story I found one resource in its That Jenny Annette community tree that listed her death date as March 29th, 1972 in Detroit, Michigan. If this is her, this is the only thing I can find about her after she was released from prison. There's no obituary I could find, no mentions of her in the newspaper, no death certificate, just lost without a trace. If she did die in Michigan in 1972, she was just 51 years old at the time of her death. And then just some quick resolution to Paul's story. In 1955, his sentence was commuted to 24 years and then in 1956 his sentence was commuted to 18 years. In 1957 he was paroled subject to a hold in California for an unstated crime and then in 1958 he was granted final discharge from parole at the Idaho State Penitentiary. I'm unclear. I don't think he went back to California. I don't think his hold was carried out, completed, and he actually went back to Arkansas where he was from. He remarried in 1961 and he passed away actually in 1968. That is the unsatisfying ending of of one of our lost ladies, number 8323, Eddie Mae Gooch Howry.
2: For being the lost lady, what an exciting story though. I know. I kind of assumed this was going to be a forgery of some kind, but like armed robbery? Mm-hmm,
0: yeah. And again, I do, I don't want to say I like, but I, I think there is, again, just the reason we do this podcast, right? These touches of humanity where Paul was just vicious and all he wanted was money from this guy. And I think he was probably a little mad and probably a little drunk and probably a little jealous which is thoroughly unacceptable to do any of these things and so she you know she said like please stop hurting this man he was going to help me let me wipe the blood off his face and even the judge said like you weren't involved in the force of it so you get a lesser sentence but you still have to be held responsible because you beat this man over the head and tied him up and left him I don't know to die in a field maybe not to die but tied him up and left him there just hopefully someone finds him so yeah it was it was a thrill to to look through her file and figure out what her story was because in the same way with Ernestine Paul who I covered several seasons ago she was another sort of lost lady and they have such interesting stories so yeah I'm so excited that we found her and that her story can be told. Here you have White the gunslinger for us. Sam, tell us your story.
2: Warning one, this story, while not as dark as my Norwood episode, will have some seriously violent moments, so viewer discretion is advised. This episode will also have an absurdly awful ending. Heartbreaking and disappointing, this story will end in blood. But for those of you who have not already skipped the next episode by now, I'll make up for the sad ending with a really incredible story. Originally, I did plan for this would be part of my Gunslinger Showdown series, but as I continued to find more twists and turns, I knew that in order to do this justice, it needed to be a standalone story. That being said, this story will involve multiple showdowns, incarceration at the Idaho Territorial Penitentiary, an intense manhunt, and enough whiskey to satisfy anyone's thirst. We will be talking about Curly Sherwood, a saloon owner who's quick with a gun, John Lee, a gambling man not afraid to test his luck, and Samuel Ridgeway, a cowboy in stage coach driver who just might find himself in the wrong saloon on the wrong night. Between the whiskey, guns, and fighting, Samuel Ridgway soon learned how real the stakes are out here in the West. Samuel Ridgway was born on October 6, 1850 in Florida, about 18 miles out of the city of Pensacola. He helped on his family's farm until the age of 20 when he set out to St. Louis to work as a cowboy, during which time he trained fast stock. After this, he moved to Cheyenne, Wyoming to drive horse-drawn ambulance. He spent the following two years helping individuals get medical care before eventually returning back to ranching. A few years later, newspapers described Ridgway as a man of medium stature, five feet 8 inches in height, light complexion, somewhat florid gray eyes with a blonde mustache. At 180 pounds, the papers described him as solidly built, active, and looking tough-knit. But in 1877, he once again packed up and left town, and this time headed to the Black Hills to the town of Deadwood, South Dakota. The Black Hills is a sacred spot to many indigenous groups, and has been for thousands of years. The U.S. government signed the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 Creating the Great Sioux Reservation and promised to keep white settlement out of the area forever. But after George Custer claimed the area to be full of gold, it started a stampede of illegal settlement. Instead of punishing the trespassers, the U.S. government supported the mining claims, broke the treaty, and forcibly removed the Lakota people. This began the Great Sioux War of 1876, which resulted in Custer's complete and total defeat. But during and after this conflict, many mining towns began to be built. In the Black Hills area, including Deadwood, Deadwood is famous as one of the wildest towns of the Old West. After the discovery of gold in the area in 1874, it became a booming mine town. This town boasted 12,000 residents when Ridgway arrived. To this day, it remains famous for housing some of the most famous gunslingers, lawmen, and outlaws of the West.
0: setting one of my favorite musicals from 1954 about a very very fictionalized version of Calamity Jane. Listen there is zero historical value in it but if you enjoy a good musical Doris Day you can't go wrong and Howard Keel. Love that man. Anyway
2: Jack McCall killed Wild Bill Hickok, one of history's most famous gunslingers, in Deadwood in 1876, the year before Ridgway arrived. Ridgway started driving stagecoach between Sydney and Deadwood. The cowboy, miner, and ambulance driver officially found his lifelong career. Many notable stagecoach companies, including Glimmer and Salisbury, as well as the Northwest Staging Company, employed Ridgway. These stage lines often transported lockboxes on behalf of of Wells Fargo, and stagecoach driving was exceedingly dangerous, and drivers were often subject to robbery and attack, making driver fatality high. White Earp, who is not then, but soon to be the most famous lawman of the Old West, rode shotgun for stagecoach in Deadwood during 1877. Earp also spent much of his time in Deadwood selling firewood, so in between stagecoach rides, Earp sold Deadwood within Deadwood. Hey! I found no historical documents to support So while it's not probable, it is technically possible that Earp rode with Ridgway, protecting him and his coach. During the many years Ridgway drove coach, he must have been subject to a lot of close calls in the dangerous occupation, especially since Ridgway frequently accompanied Sheriff Manning. Many listeners may be much more familiar with Seth Bullock, famous for being the first sheriff of Deadwood, but while the governor appointed Bullock, John J. Manning won the first official election for sheriff in 1877. Sheriff Manning inherited many responsibilities, including the difficult task of transporting convicted individuals to the territorial penitentiary. For this job, Sheriff Manning needed a driver he could count on, and few came as well-recommended as Samuel Ridgway. According to the Woods River Times, he spent years helping the sheriff transport inmates to and from the Black Hills. The truthfulness of this is unclear, but Ridgway's adventures in Deadwood were a hot topic of discussion years later during his his Idaho trial. His previous help to law enforcement may be hard to verify, but his boss, Mr. Salisbury, and others confirmed Ridgway's reliable and brave nature. Quote, he has always shown great courage in his avocation in the Cheyennes and Black Hill countries. Eventually, Sheriff Manning, drawn by the prospect of gold, left Deadwood temporarily to settle in northern Idaho near the Coeur d'Alene River. Ridgway too, found himself drawn to this new territory and its potential of wealth and adventure. By April of 1882, this cowboy called Idaho his home. But about a year prior to Samuel Ridgway's arrival to Albany, there was trouble in Woods River near Haley, Idaho. The dispute occurred between John B. Foster and John Sherwood, much more commonly referred to as Curly. Prior to moving to central Idaho to ranch, Foster worked as a Baptist minister in Boise and as an editor for the Boise Democrat. Sherwood, on the other hand, owned and operated a saloon, as well as demanding tolls for those who traveled his road, making Sherwood far from the most liked man in town. Known for his violence as well as his reliance on the bottle, the paper described him by saying quote, he was a good square man enough when sober but liable to be as bad as any when he had whiskey in him. Sherwood struggled with alcoholism, and his anger played a big factor in the rest of his life. We only have the men's contradicting testimony on what caused the dispute, but we know it started over a notice posted by Sherwood, claiming he owned the land near his road. Foster, frustrated by the sudden announcement, left his son outside to watch the horses that spring morning and stepped into Sherwood's saloon to try and talk through the disagreement. According to Foster, the discussion only angered Sherwood. Sherwood ran behind the bar to retrieve his revolver. Armed with his six-shooter, Sherwood advanced on Foster. In a panic, he grabbed the first thing he could, which just so happened to be a board. Foster brought that board with one swift swing against Sherwood's face. But the blow did not stop the approach of the gunslinger, who placed the revolver against Foster's chest, just over the heart. Foster attempted to grab the gun and push it away. Sherwood fired quote, the ball entered just left of the right nipple, struck a rib and glanced to the right and upward, came out, passed nearly through the arm and lodged near the shoulder blade.
1: Yikes.
2: Sherwood attempted to fire again, but now Foster held on with all his might. As the two men fought over the gun, other homesteaders ran to the sound of the gunfire. Sherwood abandoned the fight and fled the scene. Outside, he tried to steal Foster's horse. Foster's son, confused and scared, refused to give up the pony. Sherwood threatened to Shoot the boy down, and that was all the convincing the young lad needed. With the stolen horses, Sherwood rode into the woods. However, even with his head start, the authorities soon apprehended him. Constable Steele managed to capture the fugitive and catch him, and brought him to the Haley jail to await his trial with a bond of $1,000. Back at the saloon, the townsfolk did what they could to make Foster comfortable. Dr. Miller arrived as quickly as he could. The doctor removed the bolt, now lodged in the shoulder, and cleaned the entrance wound in the chest. Do you have a guess of how long Foster lived? after being shot.
0: It could be very long, it could be very short.
2: You never know with Old West gunshots. I know,
0: seriously. Because I'm thinking about the story that you told about Norwood, where he just like beat the heck out of that guy and he lived, ended up living for like six more months. Okay, I'm going to say 48 hours.
2: The wound is not fatal and he lives for many, many years.
0: <laughs> Trick question.
2: By what could only be described as a miracle, Foster does live, making the charges against Sherwood assault with a deadly weapon as opposed to murder
0: he's also lucky that infection didn't get him
2: oh for real especially when it went through so many parts of his chest
0: (laughs) i know when you said the doctor cleaned it i was like did he or (laughs) did he just sort of like wipe it down with some water and was like all right that's good
2: sherwood defended himself by claiming foster instigated the attack after which the circumstances forced sherwood to shoot foster threaten foster's son and then steal the horse to flee i can only imagine what that trial was like. The community knew Foster as a beloved minister, prominent rancher, and as a successful miner. They knew Sherwood as often being violent and even more frequently as intoxicated. Probably from lack of evidence, the court did not find Sherwood guilty on any serious charges. In the end, Sherwood got his gun and went free. Samuel Ridgway, on the other hand, left Deadwood and arrived in Idaho. Here, he continued to drive stagecoach between Littlewoods River to Goose Creek, a trip around 70 miles. Starting near Haley, likely passing through Jerome and Twin Falls. In good conditions this route could have been done in one very long day, but in bad conditions this trip must have been a multi-day expedition. Ridgway began working and immediately became friends with many in the area. In May, some of his co-workers at the stage introduced him to a man who used to drive stage, but now operated a slough near Haley, Idaho. A man named Curly Sherwood. Sherwood, like many of the other residents, seemed to get along quite well with Ridgway, and the two became fast friends. But just like the rest of Sherwood's associates, Ridgway soon discovered the very real danger of making his new friend angry. The following account comes from Woods River Times that they reported after watching the trial and after personally interviewing the convicted man. The account the newspaper gives is very detailed, but please understand this does not come directly from the court transcript, so take it with a grain of salt. It's June 18, 1882. Ridgway returned from his route and headed to Sherwood Saloon. Owing Sherwood money, he wanted to clear his debts and be paid up with his buddy. After settling the bill, Sherwood recommends they celebrate with some whiskey. But as the men drank, their joyful moods begin to sour. Quote, The whiskey was so villainous as to affect both men who got to wrangling on the way back to the stage station. Afterwards, neither man could recount what started the fight, only that the mood who suddenly turned and the two began to fight. The men parted ways. Ridgway went back to the station to take care of his team and unpack the stagecoach. Once finished, he headed back to Sherwood's saloon. Feeling guilty, he wanted to apologize for losing his temper with his friend. Sherwood accepted the apology and recommended they celebrate their resolution with some whiskey. That night, after drinks, Ridgway left to go back and sleep in the stable. Both men seemed to be happy, intoxicated, and confident, that all the conflicts between them were now settled. I'm sure that Ridgway, who just finished a very long trip driving coach, felt exhausted and probably was more than happy to hit the hay. In this case, probably literally. But he did not get to sleep in after his long trip. The next morning, Sherwood roughly awakened Ridgway. Sherwood had gotten a very excellent idea and needed Ridgway awake immediately. His brilliant idea was that they should share in some morning whiskey. But Ridgway was having none of it. He told Sherwood,
1: No, Curly, I don't want to drink. If I can't drink without having a quarrel, or getting into trouble, I don't want to drink at all.
2: Sherwood demanded they drink together. Ridgway was unconvinced. I
1: can't do it. I'm just as much obliged to you as if I had it, but I won't get to drinking again.
2: You won't, won't you? And raising the whiskey bottle over his head, yelled, Then take this, you son of a bitch. Sherwood hurled the bottle of whiskey at Ridgway's head. Ridgway leapt out of the way.
1: Curly, you've only come to renew the quarrel. If I had done anything wrong, as I said last night, I will apologize to you to you in any way you want me to as to satisfy you the only way you can do that is to go down to my place with me and take a drink i don't want to go down to your saloon as you feel mean and only want to renew the quarrel again you have to go down i'll go down with you on one condition that you do not renew the quarrel.
2: come on then the two men shared a few drinks then ridgway headed back out to get to work ridgway had a busy day preparing his coach and saddling a team of horses for the next trip one of the horses he needed was at a stable farther down the road By the time he had the horse, the sunset had changed from light orange to deep purple. As he rode the stallion back to the station, he found Sherwood standing at the door of the saloon. As he passed, Sherwood called out, Come, take a drink. I will take a cigar with you. So the two men stepped in to light cigars. But before Ridgeway could stop him, Sherwood ran out and stole his horse. Irritated, but not rushed, Ridgeway finished lighting his cigar and walked in the direction Sherwood had gone. Before long, he found Sherwood up the road with his horse.
1: Curly, get off. I'm in a hurry to get my horses in. It's getting late. Come on back to my saloon and take a drink. I want to take a drink with you. Get off. I'm in a hurry. The stage will be here in a few minutes and I won't have my stock ready for
2: it. Sherwood's anger erupted. He leapt from the horse, ran over, and punched Ridgway in the face. Oh hell, you are a bad man. Then he gave Ridgway a hard shove and reached for the six-shooter on his hip. Now you son of a bitch, I'm going to kill you. If Sherwood wanted a fight, Ridgway's patience now gone was willing to provide. Both men reached for their guns. With lightning speed they drew. <laughs> The bolts now spent, Sherwood calmly began to walk away before collapsing from his two gunshot wounds. Sherwood died long before help could arrive. Ridgeway got on a horse and rode to the ferry. There he explained to the ferryman what he had done and that he needed to cross the river to turn himself in to the authorities in Albion. But the ferryman informed him that with winter runoff at full volume, they could not cross until the water levels dropped. So Ridgway went back to the stable, got his coat, went to bed. This time Ridgeway was awakened not by his friends but rather by the authorities. They brought Ridgeway to the Bellevue City Jail. After only a few days he escaped and fled to the woods. Sheriff Gray quickly recaptured him and this time they brought him to the Haley Jail. Only a few weeks after the crime in early July, his trial began. Without access to those court records, the information remaining about the trials is mostly hearsay, but based on the surviving historical documents here seems to be some of the key factors that played into this case. First off, the two men's reputation could not have been more different. The locals knew Sherwood as having a short temper and quick to go for his gun, especially while intoxicated. But when it came to Ridgway, the defense found an abundance of individuals who were willing to speak highly on his behalf. Citizens from Haley, Cheyenne, and Deadwood all were willing to collaborate his story and testify to his good character. Woods River Times, summarized these remarks by saying, who say that during the many years that they've known him, he was never known to be coarsome or to drink to excess, and that his record has always been that of a sober, industrious, peaceable man. Many believed his actions were in self-defense. They also believed Sherwood seemed willing to hurt anyone if inspired by a little whiskey. Between the local newspapers, the community, and his friends, most seemed completely convinced of Ridgeway's innocence. However, there are a few other themes to to consider when trying to understand the point of view of the jurors. The showdown between Sherwood and Ridgeway took place at night, but it did not occur in an empty town. Six men witnessed the violent gunfight. Two of the men were miners, the other four were described as tramps, which in this context seems to imply they were drifters. These six men saw the fight. None of them ended up testifying on what they witnessed. The authorities also discovered Sherwood's body wore an empty holster, with no gun turning up at the scene of the crime, which raised the question, did Ridgway gun down an unarmed man? Billy Jackson testified he gave Sherwood $24 the previous night, but Sherwood possessed no money when the authorities searched his body. This ended up being some of the most damning evidence used against Ridgway.
0: How come the six men who witnessed this fight did not testify?
2: That is a really good question. Why the authorities didn't get testimony of them at the scene of the crime, at least, yeah. or witness reports, none of them came forward. The prosecution painted the fight as less of a quick-draw duel and as Ridgeway murdering an unarmed man and then robbing his corpse. However, there are a few problems with this picture. The money not being on Sherwood does not necessarily prove that it was or wasn't stolen, only that Sherwood's body did not have it when the authorities searched it. Also, it's important to note the sheriff did not find $24 on Ridgway during the arrest. The gun also seems to be a bit of a mystery. Sherwood's body did not have the gun, Ridgway did not have the gun, and they never discovered the gun at Sherwood's saloon or residence. The gun that everyone knew Sherwood owned was just missing. When asked about the absent weapon, Ridgway could not explain where it went. Ridgway claimed Sherwood pulled his pistol during the fight, and the witnesses saw Sherwood draw first, but those witnesses were now gone, and so was the weapon. When pressed, Ridgway said for all he knew one of the witnesses stole the money and the six shooter off the dead man's body while he walked to the ferry to try and turn himself in. Despite everything until the end Ridgway's story did not change. He told it consistently and stuck to it as the trial developed. So what we're left with is a crime that no one can testify to. Two bullets fired a missing gun a missing $24 and a dead body. With only Ridgway's side of the story and lack of evidence for either side, the defense doubled down on trying to betray the character of the men involved in the crime. One, a violent drunk, the other, a man forced into an act of self defense to save his life. Quote During all the years he performed his full duty, as Mr. Salisbury, one of the owners of the stage line, asserted, though repeatedly brought into contact with rough characters, was never known to have any trouble with anyone. Those were the facts given to the jury, who were left to deliberate Ridgway's fate.
0: Wonder if it's a case of, well, he's an out of towner. Yeah. Kind of thing.
2: I'm sure. It's-
0: what gets me is the fact that there's like no evidence at all.
2: The jury returned and gave their verdict to the judge. Do you have a guess on the conviction?
0: I would assume guilty, but I feel like the evidence that we have just discussed would have to be not guilty.
2: What's he guilty of?
0: Second degree murder?
2: Judge Prickett pronounced Samuel Ridgway for the death of John Sherwood guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree Oof. and gave him his sentence. Quote, the judgment of the law and your sentence is that you be by the sheriff of Alturas County hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may God have mercy on your soul.
0: Why is the judge being so harsh when the evidence points to, at the very most, manslaughter?
2: Yeah, I don't know.
0: It just doesn't make sense and I don't like it.
2: It's possible Ridgway was less of a white knight as he's portrayed Mm. in the newspapers. I don't know. I really don't know. While his honor-pronounced sentence, Ridgway looked him steadily in the face. Not a muscle of his face moved, nor was the least outward show of emotion exhibited. The judge set his execution for September 22nd. Ridgway's final days had begun. The following two months must have been excruciatingly slow for Ridgway, as he waited in solitary confinement in the Haley Jail. But for John H. Harris and the rest of the defense team who were trying to appeal the verdict, it must have flown by. The clock continued to click and each day brought Ridgeway closer to the end. Ridgeway, however, remained rather quiet in the days to follow. Quote, on his return from district court yesterday, Deputy Sheriff Parker asked him what they'd done to him in court.
1: Oh, nothing much. They just sentenced me to stand in my head till I peg out.
2: He is kept in solitary confinement in the front cell on the east side of the jail and scarcely ever has a word to say. His cell is the quietest in the jail. As they enter September, things begin looking rather grim. But just before the execution, Governor Neal heard of the case and in order to give the defense enough time to appeal the verdict, he granted a postponement of the noose until October 20th. These tense days continued and Harris worked on. Meanwhile, Ridgway asked for his crime and execution not to be shared with his family. He feared it could only bring his family shame and pain to know the crime and fate of their son. Now, the idea of a formal execution invitation still might be one of the stranger traditions of the Old West, even being required by law in some states. Often eloquently written and reflective of the Victorian Gothic era, these invitations announced the forthcoming hanging. This responsibility fell to the sheriff, some of whom took it soberly and seriously, while others used it in jest. Sheriff Frank J. Watton of the Arizona-Navajo County remains famous as the sheriff reprimanded by President McKinley for his mocking execution invitations for the hanging of George Smiley. Now, this tradition occurred throughout the United States, but became more common during the Western expansion. Now, in Idaho, invitations for executions were not required by law, but that's not to mean they were non-existent either. There. While I've not come across many leading up to Ridgway's execution, Sheriff Gray did send out an invitation to prominent businessman Frank H. Rollins. The papers decided to publish. It reads, quote, Sheriff's Office, Alturas County. To Frank H. Rollins. you are hereby invited to be present at the execution of Samuel Ridgway to take place on the Haley Racetrack, County of Alturas, Territory of Idaho, between the hours of 12 m. and 2 p.m. on the 20th day of October. 1882, as the law directs, after the completion of the gallows, which were massive and formable, but earned the builders great praise for their craftsmanship, the sense of time running out became that much more apparent. Ridgway remained quiet and consigned to his fate, but he admitted he wished he'd died during the showdown, because he preferred an instant death than the suffering caused by the prolonged wait. John Harris, Ridgway's lawyer, as well as the editor for the Chronicle, hoped for another postponement. By the governor, it had happened once before; it could happen again. But as they waited for that letter from the governor to come, they became more and more nervous. The letter they were so hoping for never came. Ridgway, during those final hours, remained firm. Quote, when night fell and no tidings were received from the governor, he nearly broke down, discouraged. His strength never failed him, however, and he remained firm and gritty to the last. The day had come. Ridgway attempted to get as much sleep as he could. At 5 a.m., unable to toss or turn any longer, he got up. At 7, a barber arrived and gave him a shave to help him look presentable to meet his fate. Afterwards, he washed his head and neck, then ordered his breakfast. Ridgway thanked Sheriff Gray and the other guards for their kindness. He asked that thanks be passed on to his many friends who stood behind him even after his crime, and for John Harris, who devoted so much work to trying to save his life. And with that, Ridgway prepared to make his final walk to the gallows. Now, probably around the same time the guards shackled Ridgway, Governor O'Neill casually rolls into town in a horse-drawn buggy. The Governor O'Neill must have at first been very confused as he stepped down in front of the Grand Central Hotel. What is all this commotion? Why is such a large crowd gathered at the racetrack? Once the reality of what was happening dawned on the governor, his demeanor immediately changed and the urgency of the situation fully set in unbeknownst to sheriff gray the governor had in fact sent a letter on the 16th postponing the execution until november but the panicking governor only now realized the sheriff had never received the letter in an absolute rush the governor found the sheriff and quickly explained the situation sheriff gray just in the nick of time called off the execution for now john harris who'd ridden into town with the governor went immediately to the jail to give ridgway the news Well, Ridgway,
1: you are saved. Is it all right? Yes, the governor said he sent the respite three days ago. He is just outside. You are again reprieved until the 24th of November. How do you like it? Well, I hardly expected it, as it was getting so late. But I was ready to meet my God, as I have committed no crime to which I should
2: dread to meet him. The postponement extended Ridgway's life for at least another month, but his execution had not been commuted, only postponed. He returned to his cell for the waiting to begin again.
0: Maybe General Malin is not the best way to deliver
2: it. Especially mail in Idaho in 1882. Yeah.
0: Should probably get someone to like hand deliver that. And also, what are the chances if you were to write this in a script, the people would be like, that's too obvious. You can't do that.
2: Yeah, totally. You can't just
0: have them randomly roll in.
2: The time spent on death row seemed to be taking a toll on him. Quote, His confinement begins to tell on him. His hair is turning gray, and he shows evidence of the suffering and mental anguish which he has undergone. Despite this, he did his best to remain stoic and gritty to the last. His execution would not be postponed again, because on November 15th, Samuel Ridgway's sentence, was commuted to life. Quote, As he realized that he was indeed rescued from the gallows, his eyes filled with tears, and he thanked God for his mercy. Although the prospect of being confined to life is by no means pleasant, he thinks it's much more preferred to hanging. You'll never guess what story Woods River Times publishes right next to the November 15th article about Ridgway's commuted sentence. What year is this? 1882. On the very same page, an article detailing a hunt being organized to track down the Camas Wildman.
0: Hey! I never would have guessed that.
2: For fans who missed our Halloween special last year, the Camas Wildman is a huge hairy monster supposedly lurking in the woods during this time period. Go back and check out that episode if you want to hear all about the monster monster rumored to be in the Idaho wilderness. Now, did Ridgway ever have any encounters with that monster? Ridgway's connection to the legend and what he thought of the story's fame is truly anyone's guess. However, there is a real possibility that he knew James McKinley, the hunter, credited for killing the Camas Wildman, as well as Woods River Times writer Picotti, who's often credited as the creator of the myth. While the Wildman may or may not be real, James and Picotti were, and living in the same area. Area is Ridgeway at a time of relatively low population for the region. I think it's more than possible that these men did in fact know each other. Either way, Ridgway headed out of the area for an extended stay in Boise. In a strange twist of fate, after years of helping Sheriff Manning transport inmates out of Deadwood by stagecoach, now he got his turn to be the passenger, as Sheriff Gray transported him by coach to the Idaho Penitentiary. In late November 1882, under the supervision of Marshal Warden Fred Dubois, Ridgway arrived at the Idaho Territorial Penitentiary to serve a life sentence for murder. Now, the penitentiary is still pretty young at this point. We only have one cell house, the Territorial. The wall is yet to be constructed, and in its place, a wooden fence around the prison. Ridgway likely used a ball and chain attached to his leg. It's possible he helped with cutting sandstone in the rock quarries around Table Rock but we can easily predict he spent most of his time locked in his cell. Still, a life of this he preferred over no life at all, but Ridgway's stay inside the prison turned out to be remarkably short. His behavior, attitude, and demeanor seemed to give credibility to his version of events, and eventually his actions were seen more as self-defense than a heartless killing. Large numbers of friends, neighbors, and prominent citizens continued to testify that, quote, Ridgway always bore good character. The residents of Haley petitioned for his release. Also signing the petition were the county officials, likely some of the same individuals who jailed Ridgway. and to no one's surprise, every single newspaper writer of Woods River Times signed as well. In 1885, after only serving three years of a life sentence, the state pardoned Ridgway. We don't know a lot about what happened to Ridgway for the next four years, but it appears he tried to go straight, staying sober, out of trouble, and working as a stagecoach driver now in Montana. But once again, he found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time in 1891. It's 26th of May, and Ridgeway is standing outside of Tom Gear's Saloon. Inside of the bar sits John Lee, who's been steadily drinking all day and is in a quote, ugly humor. But as Lee watches Ridgway in the door, he gets a great idea that he immediately shares. Maybe Ridgway could step in for a minute and together they could drink some whiskey.
0: Don't do it. It's a trap.
2: Now, I can only imagine based on his past experiences with bad-tempered, intoxicated gunslingers, Ridgway was more than a little hesitant at the suggestion. But after a brief conversation, Ridgway agrees to step in and sit with Lee at the bar. Once at the bar, Lee begins, quote, keeping a torment of abuse onto Ridgeway. Now it's very unclear why Lee got so mad at Ridgeway. Maybe the anger is over his hesitation to drink with him. Maybe Lee just needed to take his bad mood out on someone. But Ridgway finally became defensive against the other man's slandering words. Lee responded with, Sam, you take me for no good. Before Ridgway could explain himself, Lee unsheaths a six inch knife and without any kind of warning, he stabs the blade almost till its hilt into Ridgway's face. Lee yanks the blade free and Ridgway falls out of his seat and onto the floor. Quote, The wounded man fell to the floor in the throes of death, his blood and brains issuing from his fearful cut. He never spoke again and died in about an hour.
0: That's horrifying. That man deserved first-degree murder.
2: As Ridgway lies on the floor dying, John McLean and Bob Mackey attempt to disarm Lee. Lee swings around and swipes at McLean, who throws up his hands in defense. Lee slices through his fingers, which while not completely severed, are nearly cut clean off. Lee lunges and swipes at McLean's face, but the injured man falls to the floor just in time for the flash of the blade to slash over his head, finding empty air as opposed to his target, Lee stumbles, nearly losing his balance. Men started yelling and running to the scene of the crime. While Lee is temporarily distracted by this commotion, McLean crawls away, leaving bloody handprints in his wake. Luckily for McLean, Lee has now lost interest in the man and instead decides to find a weapon that he can do a little more damage with. Crossing over to the gulch below the saloon, Lee breaks into Smith's cabin. There, he steals Smith's gun, a belt of ammo, and slips away into the night.
0: Imagine having a knife, plunging it into a man's face slash skull, probably killing him almost instantly, then almost severing a man's entire finger. Like, I need something that does more damage.
2: There had to have been some real fury in Lee that night. The manhunt begins. Samuel Ridgway may not have been as beloved in Montana as in Idaho, but the community still thought very highly of him. The public outrage over the unprovoked attack is intense. John Lee, who migrated from Finland, the papers described as a tin horn gambler. For those of you unfamiliar with this term, it refers to someone who is bad at gambling and/or pretends to be wealthy, often flashy, proud, and full of a large ego. As they search for Lee, rumors begin to circulate about his other victims. The Independent Record newspaper claimed Lee had killed four people, while the Butte Weekly Miner claimed he had slain at least five. Well. Claims of Lee's trail of bodies did spread throughout the entire state. I never found any evidence to verify these claims. It's really anyone's guess whether Lee ever killed before. But either way, the people of Montana wanted justice. The Great Falls Tribune used these damning words to describe the hunt. Quote, The villain who perpetrated the owl deed of murder and mutilation, where is he? Branded like Cain of Old, hunted like a wild beast, he is somewhere in hiding in the fastness and seclusion of the Belt Mountains, hoping to elude the stern justice of the law or escape what is swifter and more terrible, the fearful grasp of mob violence. As John Lee moves in and out of the trees of the vast Montana mountains, the search parties are unable to catch him. But the authorities were not the only challenge Lee needed to deal with. A gambler, unskilled at hunting or foraging in the wild, struggled to find enough food to get by. Finally, desperate and hungry, he sneaked down to Fletcher's ranch and begged for help. Fletcher agreed, but the cowboy told Lee he needed time to get some supplies for him. Lee agreed to return in the morning. A soft rain fell on the morning of May 31st as Lee made his way down the mountain. A big storm was coming in, and soon it would be pouring. Lee made his way quietly to the edge of Fletcher's property, attempting to check out the scene before proceeding. The cocking of a gun got Lee's attention. He turned around to find Sheriff Foley standing in the rain behind it. The sheriff's gun pointed at his head, but before Lee could react, more guns were cocked and raised. He turned around to find the posse members surrounding him on all sides, 12 men in total for the ambush. Lee dropped his weapons and put his hands in the air. Now, Sheriff Foley, after 11 days of searching, had captured his man, but now faced a new challenge catching lee might have been easier than keeping the angry mob from lynching him in the name of vigilante justice a massive mob already laying wait in the city of baker to hang lee so the sheriff and his armed guards protecting the prisoner decided to take him to white sulfur springs instead they loaded up the stagecoach and drove into the pouring rain Six months later, John Lee stood trial for the crime. The evidence and witnesses were not in Lee's favor. His defense team were forced to rely the case on attacking the character of Samuel Ridgway. Defense accused Ridgway of being a gambler and a drinking man. Lee in particular claimed that Ridgway threatened his life and followed him into the bar that night looking for a fight. However, the witnesses of the fight claimed the opposite, that Lee invited Ridgway in, after which Lee Began the argument. In his defense, Lee explained that Ridgway's harassment had, quote, come so
1: uncomfortable
2: that he had no other choice but to stab a Sinks in Shepherd knife into Ridgway's face as retaliation. Now, I never found out what happened to John McLean's fingers. Most newspapers wrote they suspected it required amputation, but I personally never discovered whether that operation ever occurred. The jury discussed the severity of the crime, and after some discussion, came to an amicable decision. On November 27th, 1891, they found John Lee for the murder of Samuel Ridgway guilty of murder in the second degree. No. And sentenced him to life in prison.
0: I'm so mad about that.
2: The authorities took John Lee to Deer Lodge to serve in the Montana State Penitentiary. Any guesses on how long Lee stayed behind bars?
0: Seven years.
2: That was a great guess. In 1897, after only six years of imprisonment, the governor requested that John Lee's sentence be diminished. Governor John E. Rickards heard about the sentence and felt the punishment was far too out of proportion for the crime committed. The governor demanded that the sentence be changed to manslaughter. The newspaper The Anaconda Standard explained that Ridgway's tormenting of Lee forced Lee to act. The newspaper implied that Ridgway had been asking for it.
0: I'm honestly speechless because this simply makes no sense because from what you said, every average person is like, Ridgway's the coolest guy. Like, he's so nice. He just works really hard. Everyone likes him, even if he's an out-of-towner. And then, somehow, the authorities are like, oh, this man, the worst man that's ever walked into this town. This man who shoved a six-inch knife into his face while he was asking for it. What are you talking about? Yeah. I'm, Samuel, I'm actually very mad. I'm very mad about this story.
2: I'm kind of at loss to explain it. During John Lee's trial, Montana residents speak so highly of Ridgeway. Until about seven years later, that's when all of a sudden, the way people talk about Ridgeway kind of changes. And they start talking about Ridgeway as he's a bad guy and so maybe you know maybe there's a side of Ridgeway we didn't know but it also seems to contradict what the people of Montana were saying at the time of the slaying
0: maybe in everyday life he was really cool and he just was your cool next-door neighbor and he was really friendly but maybe with the authorities because it's like I said it's the authorities who seem to be claiming that he's this like big tough bad guy who deserves what he gets I don't understand
2: yeah With any story, there are multiple perspectives, and looking back at a story 140 years after the fact, it's hard to know what really happened. Perhaps Lee told the truth about the harassment he claimed Ridgway guilty of. Maybe Ridgway possessed a side of him many of his friends and supporters in Idaho, Montana, South Dakota, and Wyoming did not know about. Maybe Curly Sherwood was unarmed and just a man who wanted to drink with a friend. Or, maybe Samuel Ridgway was a sober, industrious, peaceable man, as so, so many people claimed. Maybe Ridgway did his best to be an honest, hardworking man who just kept finding himself in the wrong spot at the wrong time. Well, the list of people who believed and testified to Samuel Ridgway's good nature greatly outweighed those who spoke negatively of him, we'll never truly know. But no matter who's at fault for all the murder and the massive bloodshed, one thing is un. Undeniable. Samuel Ridgway had a short, violent, and tragic life. Samuel Ridgway learned that between the whiskey, guns, and fighting, the stakes are very real out here in the West.
0: I'll tell you what, next time one of my drunken friends says, hey man, let's go drink together, I think I'm gonna say no. Yeah,
2: yeah, me too.
0: <laughs> because... Uh, he's uh, 0 for 2 of his buddies being like, hey man, let's go get a drink. And things not going real badly.
2: It's a very interesting story as far as like frontier justice because you have Curly's death and Ridgeway's death and they're both murders, both that happen around saloons and both of them get sentenced and governors step in and change that sentence. At least for me, one of those stories, I have very different feelings about Governor Neal changing that sentence as opposed to governor rickards.
0: the wild west is wild for a reason great job as usual if we can't have anthony we'll definitely have the next best thing so we're thrilled to have you on the show can't wait to see what else you've got for us in the coming episodes another episode in the books a job well done we'll mix up a little bit do your own time
2: do your own number
0: see you next episode
2: If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe
1: so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other
2: sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywallsgmail.com. At Special thanks for voice actors Tristan Hafer, Raven Brown, and Rob Rublin.